0: perhaps one problem of giving an extensive outline and putting it in your uh, lap for 10 minutes before our lectures, you already know what I'm going to say on one level. But um, I want us to focus our attention this morning on Westminster Trinitarian theology, expanding the vistas of Reformed biblical and systematic theology. And let me begin by noting that I think there's a sense in which the depth of resources within the Westminster tradition has yet to be plumbed. My task in the next hour is to begin to explore two areas that cry out for development, Trinitarian theology and the relationship between biblical and systematic theology. Now, the need for such development may seem somewhat surprising given the centrality in our tradition of Trinitarian theology on the one hand and a distinctive attempt to integrate biblical and systematic theology on the other hand. While I do not anticipate saying close to everything that needs to be said in either area this morning, I do want to offer what I consider a fruitful line of thought for advancing Westminster Trinitarian theology in light of some distinguishing emphases in Westminster's approach to biblical and systematic theology. Now, the resurgent interest in Trinitarian theology affords at least two golden opportunities for those wishing to develop Trinitarian theology along lines suggested by Van Til. First, we can demonstrate, I believe, the relevance and richness of Van Til's Trinitarian theology, particularly in light of recent theological trends. Second, and on account of the value of his contribution, we can attempt to enrich and expand his legacy using the wealth of the Westminster tradition in biblical and systematic theology to assist us. While not diminishing Van Til's achievement in the least, I think that responsibility rests on us to take meaningful steps forward in developing his insights along exegetical and redemptive historical lines of thought. In this lecture, therefore, I want to map out one of Van Til's key contributions to Trinitarian theology the theological framework for relating ontological and economic aspects of the Trinity, which he called the representational principle. Van Til finds in the absolute personality of the triune God the Trinitarian basis for the covenant relationship. And in light of God's absolute personality, attempts a consistently reformed account of how we relate God's eternal and independent existence to his activity in history. What I plan to do this morning is place Van Til's contribution in the context of contemporary Trinitarian theology in order to make clear the relevance of his contribution. And then, following that, I want to suggest that Van Til's contribution to Trinitarian theology is quite amenable to the development of Reformed biblical and systematic theology, especially in some significant parallels between his Trinitarian theology and a central theme of Pauline Christology developed by Hermann Ritterboss in Paul, an outline of his theology. In other words, if Van Til is correct in his Trinitarian theology, and if Ritterboss is on the mark in his understanding of Paul, then their theological approaches offer us something stimulating a stimulating opportunity to ask fresh questions about the relationship between biblical and systematic theology. Now, this may sound like a lot to cover in one lecture, but take heart, the lecture will run just over four hours with two brief intermissions. (laughs) Just kidding, you'll you'll have plenty of time for the donuts and the coffee afterwards, I promise. Uh, One other introductory note, we'll be covering some fairly difficult terrain this morning, and this is simply the nature of the case when you attempt to deal with either contemporary Trinitarian theology or especially Van Til. Um, But the central points I will develop should be clear enough and easy enough to follow, so let's begin looking at the contemporary scene in Trinitarian theology. Classical Reformed theology has made a fundamental distinction when it comes to thinking about the Godhead. It has consistently distinguished ontological and economic aspects of the trinity. The ontological trinity designates God as the self-contained being who exists apart from and prior to his relation to the world. The economic trinity, on the other hand, pertains to the works of God with reference to the world. The language of ontological trinity accents God's absolute metaphysical independence from the world and the language of economic trinity stresses God's relation to the world. In the development of 20th and now 21st century theology, we have witnessed a growing effort among theologians to question the legitimacy of the ontological trinity altogether. Karl Rahner's widely discussed rule that the ontological trinity is the economic trinity and vice versa has opened a veritable Pandora's box of theologies that deny the ontological trinity in favor of the economic trinity. In other words, these approaches deny the ontological trinity, as traditionally understood, on account of God's activity in history. For instance, Ted Peters, who is Professor of Systematic Theology at Lutheran Theological Seminary and the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California, has addressed the relationship of ontological and economic aspects of the Trinity in a work entitled, God is Trinity, Relationality and Temporality in Divine Life. In this recent volume, he denies the ontological trinity understood in terms of God as a self-contained, self-sufficient being who exists apart from and independent of his relation to the world. Instead of this option, Peter speaks of, quote, the divine process of self-constitution with the world's history, end quote. For, in other words, In Peter's estimate, the very being of God, what makes God who he is, is constituted by his interaction with the created order. And this means that the features pertaining to the created order, such as process, change, and temporality, apply to God's own being. Now, this ought to be alarming to those familiar with Reformed theology, Uh, This apparently Hegelian notion of God's being as constituted by interaction with the created order effectively undermines the creator-creature distinction by placing God and creation within a single continuum of space-time reality. In short, God loses his absolute and sovereign status as the Lord of creation since his very being develops in terms of interaction with the created order. Now, Peters claims that he's simply following the theological implications of Rahner's rule, that is, um, what has amounted to a rejection of what classical Reformed theology refers to as the ontological trinity. Now, in radical opposition to the older model, theologians such as Peters construe the trinity in a way that denies his independence and self-sufficiency on the basis of his involvement in history. This trend is clear in the approaches of Jürgen Moltmann, Wolfhart Pannenberg, and Karl Rahner to name a few. Catherine Mary Lacunia is an outstanding recent example of this trend. Lacunia, a highly creative Roman Catholic theologian, offers her assessment of Trinitarian theology in a work entitled God for Us: The Trinity in Christian Life, a volume published in 1991 that won her the Catholic Press first place award uh, for theology. In this work, she argues that the central issue in contemporary Trinitarian theology is as follows, quote, the question of how the Trinitarian pattern of salvation history is to be correlated with the eternal being of God, end quote. Her observation distills the essence of a pervasive concern in contemporary discussions of the Trinity relating on to logical and economic aspects of the Godhead. And this is the primary issue that concerns Lacuna throughout her 411-page volume. Now, the way Lacuna construes the relationship is intriguing, and it confirms Peter's perception of a, of a drift in contemporary Trinitarian theology. The opening observations in her introduction are significant. She begins by stating that the life of God, precisely because God is triune, does not belong to God alone. In fact, quote, because of God's outreach to the creature, God is said to be essentially relational. Therefore, divine life is also our life, end quote. Now this language might not sound too far from the mark. It is true that because of God's outreach to the creature, we are related to God and participate in the redemptive life he has provided in Christ. In fact, if this is all that Lacuna had to say, I doubt there would be much controversy at all. However, she goes far beyond this simple and uncontroversial observation. She argues that on account of God's outreach to the creature, it is inappropriate to posit, quote, intra-divine relations, God in God's self, end quote. Instead of affirming the classical distinction between ontological and economic aspects of the Trinity, Lacuna says that the two are, quote, aspects of one reality, the mystery of divine human communion, end quote. In other words, to speak of God as ontological trinity is already to speak of divine human communion. What standard Reformed theology would identify as God's eternal self-contained existence, Lacuna would conceptualize merely as an aspect of a single divine human relationship. In her mind, to speak of intra-divine relations or to speak of God as the self-contained eternal Lord is to enter illegitimate theological terrain. To put this a little more tersely, Lacuna denies divine aseity on the basis of divine relationality. This means that on account of God's activity in history, he cannot be understood as eternally self-complete and metaphysically independent of the created order. And Lacuna makes this explicit. She says, in light of God's loving outreach to the creation, quote, God is not self-contained, end quote. The rest of her work in God for Us attempts to elaborate the implications of this alarming conclusion. In brief compass, then, Lacuna winds up rejecting the classical and reformed notion of the ontological trinity on the basis of God's relation to creation. God's relationality to the world means that he is no longer to be viewed as a self-contained and eternally self-sufficient Godhead. God in himself, God as say, God as self-contained ontological trinity simply does not exist. If God is related essentially to the creature in his works, then he is related essentially to the creature in his being since the traditional distinction between ontological and economic trinity must give way to the single reality of divine human communion. Rather than speaking of both intra-divine relations and God's outreach to the creature in history, Lacunia concludes that we need to speak exclusively of divine human relations. How ought, we res- to, uh, how ought we respond to Lacunia's challenge? Well, the first point to observe is this: we cannot simply dismiss her arguments and observations. Her approach represents a growing trend in Trinitarian theology. She is not a lone voice. Therefore, we need to meet the challenge posed by Lacunia and others, and I believe that the resources resident in the Westminster tradition will help us engage this discussion in a distinctive and creative way. Now, I don't want to reduce Westminster's tradition in Trinitarian theology to a single person, but I think it is fair to observe that no person in the Westminster tradition has reflected more on the theology of the Trinity than Cornelius Van Til. His work in the area of Trinitarian theology has a great deal of relevance for the contemporary situation. And before we get too far into Van Til's contribution, let me state in advance his approach and relate it to Peters and Lacunia. Van Til offers a way to affirm both God's osseity, that is his existence prior to and independent of creation, and his real relation to the created order. He provides a theological framework that both distinguishes and integrates ontological and economic aspects of the Trinity without marginalizing or denying one in light of the other. We will see that Van Til's Trinitarian theology is much more balanced and helpful than Lacunia's, and focuses Trinitarian theology much more adequately. Now let us examine his important and, and creative contribution. To begin with, let us recall that Van Til affirms without reservation that God exists independent of and prior to the created world. This is what we mean by affirming God's aseity. At the head of his discussion in the defense of the faith, he underscores the independence or aseity of God. And he says, by this is meant that God is in no sense correlative to or dependent upon anything besides his own being. God is absolute. He is sufficient unto Himself. This means that process or becoming does not apply to the divine life proper. God does not and cannot change, Van Til says, since there's nothing besides His own being on which He depends. Now, As a consequence of God's independence or aseity, Ventil remarks that there is no beginning or end or succession of moments in God's being or God's consciousness. He asks or says, if we ask whether being or becoming is first, we reply by saying that first of all, the term becoming cannot be applied to God. God's being is not subject to becoming. He is eternal being. As for created being, it is in the process of becoming. Now, when we speak of the eternal God, Vantel observes that the eternal does not exist as a principle, but as a person, and that an absolute person. The basic point God, as the absolute triune person, exists as an eternal and self contained being. As a result of this, Reformed theology is committed to a two-layer theory of reality. God's being is ultimate, and created being is, in the nature of the case, derivative. Van Til makes a principal and absolute distinction between the eternal being and knowledge of God on the one hand and the temporal being and knowledge of creatures on the other hand. The former is absolute and self-contained, whereas the latter is dependent and derived no more basic distinction is conceivable. Now this is Van Til 101, right? Let's make it a little more interesting now. Remarking on the problems with modern philosophy and theology in the 20th century, Van Til notes that, quote, eternity is never anything more than a correlative of time, end quote. In Van Til's mind, it is only the Christian who believes in God as a self-sufficient being and not dependent upon time reality. Therefore, there's a basic and non-negotiable difference between the classical Reformed notion of God as independent of time reality and the non-Christian thought that makes God, um, that makes eternity and time facets of one basic reality. However, Van Til also believes that the triune God has entered into history through a voluntary act of creation. That is to say, while remaining the absolute and independent Lord, the triune God has voluntarily condescended and entered into relations with the temporal order of creation. And at this point, remember Lacuna's argument. We cannot believe in a God who both relates to creation and who exists eternally and independently of creation. So the question is, how can our Westminster tradition affirm both God's independence of creation and his involvement with creation? How can we affirm that such a God actually interacts with creatures in history without commingling eternal and temporal aspects of reality? Well, let's look at three lines of argument that Van Til suggests that are designed to meet the sort of challenge posed by Lacuna. The first line of reasoning in Van Til is uh, derived from his assessment of the theology of the hypostatic union, the contribution of Chalcedon. Remember, the hypostatic union is the way that Christ's divine and human natures relate in the incarnation. Just to give you a quick reminder, quick refresher, the hypostatic union can be described in the following language, the eternal Son of God became man and was and continues to be both God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Now given this view of the relationship between the divine and human natures in Christ, Van Til stresses that we first think of the ontological trinity before we think of the economical trinity, his language. What he means is that we remember that the second person of the ontological trinity, quote, who was in his essence fully equal with the father and therefore existed from all eternity with the father in the incarnation assumed a human nature, end quote. In the hypostatic union, in other words, we see how God can remain independent of and prior to the world while relating to it the divine and human natures of Christ were at no point intermingled with one another in their intimate and permanent hypostatic union. In fact, Van Til observes that the Creed of Chalcedon has expressed this by saying that the divine and human natures are so related as to be two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The former designations safeguard the problem of commingling the human and the divine natures, whereas the latter avoids the problem of denying the real union of the divine and human natures. What is important for us is this. Even in the incarnation, Christ could not commingle the eternal with the temporal the eternal must always remain independent of and prior to the temporal. Rather than denying the reality of the hypostatic union in an attempt to safeguard Christ's deity, Van Til believes that both the reality of the hypostatic union and the integrity of both natures ought to be equally affirmed, replete with mystery as it may be. Now this Christological model is crucial for understanding Van Til's Trinitarian theology. How so? Well, this is the second step in Van Til's thought and moves us into the terrain of limiting conceptions. The Creed of um, Chalcedon provides a Christological model that can be extended cosmically and used to distinguish the creator from the entire created order. Just as the divine and human natures of Christ are not commingled with one another when brought into hypostatic union, so also the eternal being of God is not commingled with creation when the creative act occurs. This means that the features that pertain to the created world, such as change and temporality and process, do not pertain to the eternal being of God. Rather, the aseity and eternity of God as ontological trinity continues unchanged when he creates the temporal order. Another way of saying this is that God's eternity and independence in no way undermines his freedom in voluntary condescension to enter into real relations with creatures. Invoking the Christological parallel again, just as the two natures are united in the hypostatic union without being commingled with one another, so also by analogy we affirm equally the truths of aseity and voluntary condescension. Reformed theologians such as Calvin and Turretin, the Westminster Divines, the Hodges, and Herman Bavinck affirmed both divine aseity and voluntary condescension. And the question then is simple. What theological framework does Van Til offer that allows him to integrate these apparently conflicting aspects of theology? Well, the answer appears in the appropriation of limiting concepts. In Van Til's language, a limiting concept is a concept that should never be employed to do duty by itself. Expanding a bit, he says, the Christian notion of the limiting concept is the product of the creature who seeks to set forth in systematic form something of the revelation of the creator, the self-contained being that scripture presents to us. So to use previous examples, we affirm that Christ is fully God and fully man, or that God is independent of the world and voluntarily condescends to relate to the world, but we do not allow the truth of one concept to eradicate or eliminate the truth of the other, apparently conflicting concept. We don't affirm that because Christ became man, he ceased to be God, nor do we mean that because God voluntarily condescended, he ceased to be eternal and self-contained. Rather, we hold both together in full affirmation of both the truth and the mystery of what is confessed. However, we still need to ask, what about Van Til's doctrine of the Trinity makes it possible to affirm both God's independence from the created order and his involvement in the created order. That is, what provides the distinctively trinitarian rationale for what we've just discussed? Well, the unique and original contribution Van Til makes when attempting to relate the absolute triune God to history emerges in what he calls the representational principle. Uh, He develops this principle extensively in the survey of Christian epistemology. What is this principle? Well, to summarize, the representational principle denotes two things. First, it denotes something internal to the very being of God. Namely, the absolutely personal fellowship within the Trinity. The personal communion with the Godhead is so complete that it excludes every vestige of impersonality. This is a long way of saying that God is absolute personality. In addition to this, the representational principle denotes the covenantal relationship between the Creator and the creature, or the Redeemer and the redeemed. In Van Til's thought, the absolutely personal and self-sufficient triune God provides the ontological ground for the possibility of the covenant relationship. In his own language, Van Til says this, there is completely personal relationship without residue in the Godhead. And for that reason, it may be said that man's actions are all personal too." End quote. In Van Til's estimate, God exists as the absolute triune personality. And it is because of this that the creature is face to face with the absolutely personal God According to Van Til, this face-to-face relationship with God is at the heart of the covenant idea. An absolutely personal relationship with creatures is possible, in other words, only because God is antecedently and eternally an absolute triune personality. Put more directly in the language of Trinitarian theology, we can say that because God in his eternal being is absolutely personal, his relationship to creation and redemption is absolutely personal as well. Contrary to Lacunia, just because God eternally exists as an absolute triune personality, he can enter into absolutely personal or covenantal relations with creatures. Far from denying God as ontological trinity on the basis of his activity in history, Van Till makes a foundational distinction between the two. But in addition to this, he explains the connection between God's eternal existence and his historical activity. Therefore I suggest that Van Till understood the different aspects of the representational principle as limiting concepts. What we affirm about God's relationality as the self-contained ontological trinity in no way detracts from what we say about God and his relation to creatures. Now, perhaps it goes without saying that Lacuna and Peter's theological formulations are simply inadequate. For Reformed theology, precisely because God is eternally and essentially triune, his life is self-contained and belongs to him alone, since there's a qualitative difference between God's eternal, necessary, and independent being on the one hand, and the temporal, contingent, and dependent being of the creature on the other hand. But it is precisely because God is essentially and eternally self-relational that he can enter into relationship with creatures. God is essentially relational in his eternal being, independent of and prior to relations with creatures, and this fact makes possible meaningful, historical, and personal relations with creatures. See, therefore, contrary to Lacuna, Ventil refuses to deny divine aseity on account of relationality, and he does so by recourse to limiting conceptions and the representational principle. And in this way, I think, he maintains an important balance in his Trinitarian theology, a balance lacking in much, if not all, of the contemporary discussions. But now let us turn our attention to um, expanding the vistas of Westminster biblical and systematic theology. In light of what we've said, as I mentioned in the introduction, I believe Van Til's Trinitarian theology has much to offer to the contemporary scene. But I believe that we can take some significant strides forward in developing his Trinitarian theology from an exegetical and redemptive historical perspective. Therefore, let me outline very briefly one way to develop his insights in light of biblical theology, particularly the Christological insights of Herman Ritterboss and Paul and an outline of his theology. And after this, I'll pose some questions and offer some suggestions to help us expand the vistas of Reformed biblical and systematic theology. Now, among the many penetrating theological affirmations in Ritterboss' treatment of Paul and his Christology, perhaps none are more significant than the relationship between Christ's ontic status as the eternal son to his redemptive historical function as incarnate son. No matter how basic the realized and future eschatology of redemptive history may be in Paul's theology, and it is basic, no doubt, the controlling importance of the redemptive historical cannot for a moment be isolated from Christological considerations. And Ritterboss observes that the centrality of redemptive historical concern along with the supreme importance of the humiliation and exaltation of Christ, quote, does not alter the fact that in the whole of his preaching, uh, pardon me, does not alter the fact that the whole of his preaching of the historical and future revelation of Christ, in Paul, is supported by the confession of Christ as the Son of God in the supra and prehistorical sense of the word, it can even rightly be said that the sending of the Son by the Father in the fullness of time presupposes his preexistence with God. Reflecting further on the integration of Christ's eternal ontic status and his redemptive historical function, Ritterboss notes that the exaltation of Christ, quote, is at the same time not for a moment to be divorced from the significance of Christ's person as such. Therefore, he says, one cannot precisely because of his preexistence, that is, his existing prior to revelation of the Son, permit the being of the Son to be lost in his revelation as the Son of God. In this statement, Ritterboss affirms the crucial distinction between the eternal being and historical function of the Son of God. But in light of this, and equally important to emphasize, he says, quote, when Paul speaks of Christ's preexistence, he regards and designates this not as separate from, but precisely in its bearing on Christ's revelation in redemptive history, End quote. In other words, while Christ's eternal being remains prior to And independent of his function in history, the latter in no way negates, denies, or marginalizes the former. And in addition to this, Ritterboss remarks that undoubtedly what is said in Colossians 1.15 concerning Christ as the image of God, firstborn and so forth, does not simply spring from Paul's conception of Christ as the second Adam in 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 5. In fact, Ritterboss believes that a fundamental difference exists between Paul's conception of Christ in Colossians 1.15 on the one hand, and 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 5 on the other hand. He says this, whereas 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 5 present Christ as the second or last Adam who follows after the first in the order of redemptive history. Colossians 1.15 presents Christ as the firstborn, the image of God, as antecedent to the first, as coming before the first. To be very brief, what is true about Christ historically as the one who follows after Adam does not subvert what is true about Christ eternally as the one who precedes Adam. To make it a bit more concrete, Ritterboss suggests this, that Christ as the eternal son is firstborn over all creation. Colossians 1.15. And this same truth finds its redemptive historical expression in the resurrected Christ as firstborn from the dead. As second Adam resurrected from the dead, we witness in history the unveiling of what is true of Christ in his eternal being. Ritterboss remarks that it is From Christ's significance as second Adam, all the categories are derived which further define his significance as firstborn of every creature. In other words, what Christ obtained by virtue of his resurrection from the dead discloses his significance as the firstborn over all creation. Now, this sort of formulation in Ritterboss, I believe, is amenable to Van Til's affirmation of both osseity and voluntary condescension, the use of limiting concepts, and the fundamental import of the representational principle. Ritterboss recognizes that Christ's ontic status is not rejected on the basis of his redemptive historical function, and Christ's redemptive historical function is not divorced from his ontic status as the eternal son of God. With ontological priority given to Christ's eternal person, both his status as eternal son and his function as incarnate son are limiting conceptions of one another. Both are equally affirmed by Paul and neither should be set over against the other. Therefore, Ritterboss offers us some significant Pauline material that can exegetically enhance and enrich Van Til's unique contribution to Trinitarian theology. And his contribution makes explicit the complementary relationship between exegesis and systematics. Ritterboss makes clear that the fundamental exegetical underpinnings of what I, uh, he makes clear, the fundamentally exegetical underpinnings of what I believe is theologically resident in Van Til's more dogmatic approach. Now, of course, the approach that both Ritterboss and Van Til advocate is to begin with God's revelation in scripture. But it is precisely in God's in Scripture-rated revelation that we learn to distinguish and relate Christ's eternal being and redemptive historical function as the son of God. Now if Van Til is correct and if Ritterboss is on the mark then we have in Paul an exegetical basis for both distinguishing and relating Christ's eternal being and redemptive historical function. And given the fact that one of Ritterboss's primary points of departure is Colossians 1:15 and following His theological conclusions, along with Van Til's Trinitarian framework, allow us to ask some interesting questions of key Pauline texts. Let me just ask a few of these questions and offer some observations this morning. First, do not the connections between Van Til and Ritterboss, particularly the theological implications of Colossians 1.15 and following, offer some fruitful, exegetical material that could advance significantly the biblical moorings of Van Til's approach? The theological implications of Ritterboss's treatment of Paul complement and supplement much of what Van Til had to say, but neither Ritterboss nor anyone else has ever attempted directly to develop the exegesis in categories sensitive to the development of Trinitarian theology, and Van Til's approach in particular. Ritterboss's treatment of Colossians 1.15 and following accents directly the interface of eternal, ontological, and redemptive historical realities in the person and work of Christ. And Paul moves on to relate this to epistemological and philosophical concerns in 2, 3, 4, and 8. Second, if there's some significant overlap between Van Til's Trinitarian theology and Ritterboss's Christology, does not the material in Colossians 1.15 and other places in Paul provide some fresh exegetical opportunity for creative engagement of difficult and important theological issues that relate to the Trinity and redemptive history? If Van approach mounts an impressive challenge to contemporary Trinitarian theology, and if Ritterboss points us in a beneficial direction for treating these issues exegetically and redemptive historically, then does not it seem plausible that we can advance creatively both biblical and systematic theology in our interaction with trends in the contemporary scene? Third and last, it seems that our previous observations provide some fresh exegetical opportunity not only to engage contemporary concerns, but also for constructive theological exploration of issues central to our own tradition. If Paul's fundamental concern in Colossians 1.15 centers on relating Christ's eternal being and redemptive historical function, while neither denying or marginalizing one in light of the other then it seems that such a text in Paul affords the opportunity to ask questions from the text immediately relevant to the systematic theological enterprise. It seems that given the parallels between Van Til and Ritterboss, we can discern a theological line of inquiry that turns up some deep continuities between biblical and systematic theology in the Westminster tradition. Continuities to develop together in a community of theological rigor and faithful devotion to Christ. We may have an opportunity to make some fairly important strides forward in consolidating and integrating biblical and systematic theology using Trinitarian and redemptive historical categories as our point of departure. These are a few of the questions and issues I leave you to consider. I think it well worth our time to continue to converse with contemporary concerns in Trinitarian theology in light of the rich biblical and systematic theological perspective embodied in the Westminster tradition. And as we engage the contemporary scene, we will also have opportunity to expand and enrich the vistas of reformed biblical and systematic theology in the 21st century. Thank you. Uh, the question is, uh, does Colossians 1.15 say that Christ is, as firstborn of creation, himself a creature? Is that what the language is designed to convey? And what the language is actually, I believe, designed to convey on a closer ex- inspection appears in verse 16. As the firstborn over creation, he is the one who actualizes or brings into existence the created order. And so the reference is to Christ's Transcendence or preeminence over the created order as the one who brings it into existence, um, So that the, uh, at least the way Ritterboss and many others read the language of Christ's firstborn, his status as firstborn over creation. it's not so much commenting on the fact that Christ is a creature, but in Ritterboss's language, it's a, it's a christological reinterpretation of creation so that prior to the categories of space and time, the things that pertain to creatures, prior to that, grounding that, is the creative activity of Christ. I'm glad we don't have a lot of time this morning, but um, that's a good question. The question is how do we handle the use of logic in light of limiting conceptions and trying to affirm things that are apparently contradictory with one another. Well, the first thing to notice is that Van Til is not advocating that we take what is really contradictory and try to hold it together in some kind of creative tension. Um, One place where Van Til clarifies what he means by affirming the really contradictory is, he said, the really contradictory would be for God both to elect and not elect elect at the same time and in the same sense. He said, that's nonsense. That's the really contradictory. What he's trying to say is instead we want to advocate the apparently contradictory, and this is what he has in mind. The finite mind does not have the capacity to exhaust the truth of any single revealed statement in the Scripture. Why? Because the revelation that God has given us in Scripture Is a finite replica of the absolute and exhaustive knowledge that resides in God alone. So that when you and I address as creatures God's revelation, we are at every point encountered with the incomprehensible God. So that uh, what Van Til's wanting to say, to focus it in light of perhaps what Ritterboss is saying, is the tendency of autonomous human reasoning would be to take a proposition, God acts in history. God is related to history, Lacunia's argument. God is essentially related to history. That's a very murky way of putting it. That's how she puts it. And to draw the conclusion from that, that therefore God cannot remain eternally self-complete and independent from creation. What what ultimately drives Van Til's use of limiting conceptions is the desire to be faithful to the full-orbed character of biblical revelation and recognize that at our best, we can only touch the hem of the garment of the one who dwells in unapproachable light. So logic always has this ministerial function operating subordinate to scripture. And a big concern that I would have in Lacuna and others among many concerns, but a big concern would be that uh, that ministerial use of reason is, is going to get crowded out and we're going to start trading things like the humanity of Christ for the deity of Christ, God's activity in history from his eternal self-completeness. And limiting conceptions are just designed to accentuate both incomprehensibility and um, express as fully as we can the content in scripture and Reformed theology. Uh, the question is I've already gotten the representational principle from Augustine and Turretin and Bavink, and therefore I don't see how Van Til's contributing anything. Well, that's, an, that's a great question, and it, it gives me an opportunity to make a point that Van Til did not develop his Trinitarian theology in a vacuum. There is a rich continuity and heritage behind what Van Til's doing, the survey of Christian epistemology, the bright lights that he's following, at least in that volume are Augustine and Calvin primarily. Of course, he's aware of Bavinck and Hodge and others and Turretin. But um, what I think is unique in Van Til's doctrine or conception of the representational principle is his idea of God as absolute personality. Van Til believes that God is one person and three persons uh, on the basis of the interpenetration of the members within the Godhead. There is Absolute personality without any uh, residue or vestige of impersonality. And Ventil asks this question um, Yes, it's true that God, as an absolute triune personality, personality, can will the covenant relationship. But what he's trying to do is back up and find the ultimate ontological basis that makes possible this personal face to face relationship between God and the creature. So that he's he's integrating, I believe, a very nuanced and and developed uh, Trinitarian theology, and trying to bring it to bear on covenant relationship, the very possibility of the covenant relationship, and as he develops elsewhere, um, a revelational approach to epistemology. So while I think there is continuity there, um, just at you know one example, there is some advance in Van Til. Um, he even cites that what he's doing wasn't fully accomplished by either Augustine or Calvin, and he's trying to move it forward in a, in a creative impulse. So, um, Well, the question is, isn't, um, aren't the insights in um, Augustine's doctrine of the Trinity the same that you find in Van Til? Well, there's a, a wide progress in Trinitarian theology um, that, that you see from... Augustine, to Calvin, to Turretin, to the Hodges, to Van Til. Um, I think that what Van Til would be concerned to improve upon in Augustine and develop in Augustine is the absolute ontological equal ultimacy of the persons in the Godhead. Van Til agrees with that. But I think where Van Til um, advances the discussion, he advances it in several ways, but one way is making explicit um, the relationship between the being of God, the persons in the Godhead, and their interpenetration, um, And he uses some, some categories, uh, one perichoresis that I think is, is resident in Augustine, but isn't fully developed um, in Augustine. So I think there are some developments in Van Til uh, beyond Augustine, just as there are developments in Van Til beyond Calvin. He's trying to incorporate the best from the tradition and, and take some steps forward. And the representational principle, um, God is absolute personality. One person, three persons is one way I think he tries to move forward. The, the, make sure I'm understanding this. The question is, how can what we've discussed in a semi-sophisticated way today translate into um, some kind of practical relevance to the person without any theological background, something like that? Well, that that might be something better answered in a in a class that's devoted to practical theology. However, um, I think that the genius of what Van Til's doing and the genius of what Ritterboss is doing is that on any level that you engage someone, uh, you can you can aim in terms of sophistication. You can begin by talking about the ultimately personal God who created the world and who holds you totally accountable as a finite person to him. Um, You can talk to the unbeliever about um, Romans 1, the fact that there is no excuse for resisting or rejecting God's revelation in history. Um, One reason, I think, one deep theological reason, is that God, as absolute person, places absolute obligations on created persons. And so you can really uh, bring to the fore um, the deeply and intensely personal character of communion with God, um, the face-to-face relationship that you have with God, whether you're an unbeliever or a believer. And I think you can also um, adapt these texts right out of the Bible to the level of the people with whom you're dealing. You'd, uh, just as with the Van Til's transcendental method, you're not going to begin presupposing that someone has a PhD in philosophy. There are many levels in which you can meet um, uh, objections or questions. So also here, but the focus this morning was trying to take some some strands that are present in our tradition, focus them and try to make uh, try to suggest ways to take steps forward. So that's why we didn't do a lot on practical issues. Or, you know, the question is, is, is there a weakness in the tradition here? And is Lacunia or would Peters be reacting to something there? Well, I think if you read Lacunia within the first two or three pages, uh, she talks about the, the, the death, the demise, the failure of Trinitarian theology. And her primary concern is that to speak Uh, This is something close to a quote, to speak of intra-divine relations, to speak of God as ontological trinity, completely strips the trinity of any practical value whatsoever because Trinitarian theology becomes walking up on a board and relating terms and relations to one another, talking about that which has no bearing whatsoever on our Christian life. It becomes an arid, speculative, metaphysical exercise. And she thinks that's what um, Trinitarian theology historically has been really prone to do. Is that resident in the, in the Reformed tradition? Um, it's hard for me to see that as a legitimate criticism of the Reformed tradition. Um, and I, I think the emphasis that we have both on God's self-contained existence and his voluntary condescension in covenant I think those things um, really really do provide some, some pretty meaningful answers. I think Van Til focuses it in a helpful way, but I think that uh, the focus, by and large, has, has always been there. I think Lacuna's thinking more of the um, speculative metaphysics in the Thomistic tradition, and she's, she's caught some criticism from people who think she's overstated her case. Um, I think she has overstated her case. That was one of the reasons. Um, I chose her. It's a, it's a developing trend, but it's it's something that I think the reform tradition, historically and presently, um, I, I just don't think we're. Um, I don't think that's been a significant problem. Right. Well, the, the the brief answer to a very good question that would take a lot to to answer adequately. I'm just going to sketch something. I think remembering that all of the disciplines in the curriculum interpenetrate one another. Uh, I'm Not intending that as an analog of uh, the perichoretic relationships in the Godhead, but they do interpenetrate and reinforce one another. And I think that contributions can be made, but given the progressive development of revelation in history, it, it strikes me that it might not be as direct and as germane as some of these, uh, some of this high Christology that you find in the in the New Testament. That being said, the revelation of God, especially in the Old Testament, is replete with uh, transcendence and sovereignty and omniscience, and the plan of God in history uh, being immutable and unthwartable, um, so that the the nature of God and the character of God as transcendent, other, sovereign, all-knowing, all-controlling, that is not at all compromised in my my read of the Old Testament. So that I I think when we're talking about self-contained existence and voluntary condescension, if that's anywhere, that's Genesis 1 all the way forward, uh, from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, Thematizing the explicit Trinitarian content I think is easier to do in the New Testament, but the limiting concepts, the transcendence of God, the sovereignty of God, and so on, is present from Genesis to Revelation. Like I said, that's not fully adequate, but one way of trying to get there. Well, that's a great question. Is there a single root problem that causes this um, denial of the ontological or just conflating the two altogether? Well, yes, I think there is. And I don't want to pick one guy in history and make him the bad guy, but I think that the development, especially in the 19th century, of Hegelian philosophy, where eternal and temporal categories are just inherently correlatives of one another and in a dynamic reciprocity with one another, has given a very strong philosophical impetus toward these trends. For instance, Peters, uh, Pannenberg, Even Hunsinger, when he's commenting on Barth, notes that in the background of this uh, correlativity of eternity and time, of of what I consider to be failing adequately to distinguish ontological and economic aspects of the Trinity, is a Hegelian tendency. I mean, um, Peter's that the divine life is constituted by interaction with the created world. Um, I'm not wanting to say it's formal equivalence that's not just a page right out of Hegel, but it is very, it has a very Hegelian ring to it. And so um, that's contemporary, but when you look at it from a bigger picture in, in the history of philosophy, you've got Parmenides and you've got Heraclitus. <laughs> and how you're going to get those together is um, kind of the, um, the, uh, the dialectic that non-Christian thought just can't, can't answer. But I think it's answered in the Trinity. It goes back to the garden, but Hegel's a good recent guy.